latest episode of the Cardiovascular Digital Health Podcast, where we interview academics and entrepreneurs at the front lines of digital health. My name is Dr. Hamid Gumbari, and I am the deputy editor of the Cardiovascular Digital Health Journal. If you like this episode and would like to support our work, please subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform and leave us a review and visit our website, the Cardiovascular Digital Health Journal. Welcome to the latest episode of the Cardiovascular Digital Health Podcast. Today's guest is Dr. Ki uh, Chan, a good friend of mine from UMass, and he's going to be talking about his really interesting paper of feasibility of atrial fibrillation detection from a novel armband wearable device. Welcome, Ki. Thank you very much. Um, Ki, you are uh, prolific in this area, particularly in digital health. Can you... Uh, Tell us a little bit on our audience, a little bit about yourself and the kind of work that you do and how you became interested in this particular topic. Okay, yeah, thank you. Uh, so it's great to be here with you today. Um, so my name is Ki Chan, and I'm currently a professor and head of uh, biomedical engineering at University of Connecticut in stores. In stores. Um, so I got into the um, atrial fibrillation uh, area back when I was a professor at uh, SUNY Stony Brook. Uh, so I was working with the electrophysiologist there. And um, I had a history with him when I was doing postdoc at MIT. And uh, he was, you know, uh, at, at Stony Brook um, professor there. And so we reconnected and, um, and we wanted to do some uh, convenient way of detecting atrial fibrillation. And as you know, um, most people have a paroxysmal AFib. And so um, how do you come up with an algorithm that is real-time realizable to actually detect AFib? So I started this back in, I believe, around um, around 2008 or 2009 or so. And so uh, we came up with um, a very simple uh, algorithm that essentially looks for the variability that you see in the RR interval from ECG as a signature of detecting AFib. And so, you know, we got started by uh, doing that, uh, developing that algorithm. And, uh, we, you know, like everyone else, uh, so fortunately, we had the MIT BIH database to uh, benchmark our algorithm against um, and that's what other other people do now these days. When someone c- comes up with a new algorithm, they all we all benchmark against that same standard database, which is really nice because then you can really compare all the uh, algorithms. And so at the time, you know, we were one of the uh, most accurate uh, algorithm available. Um, and uh, and fortunately for us, also um, based on that publication that came out of that collaboration, a um, local halter monitoring company who at the time was based in New York uh, City uh, saw our article and um, was interested in in, uh, licensing our algorithm. So in fact, uh, our algorithm based on uh, from that paper uh, with the further validation with their own data from this halter monitor company, uh, we were able to license the algorithm and uh, the the algorithm is currently on, on the market. And um, yeah, I don't know if I answered your question. Yeah, you did. That's terrific. It's okay. amazing that to see that 
how technology that you develop in your lab can really impact patients' uh, lives from day to day. That's really all we want to do. And that's that's a great um, story of how actually that happened. Um, I want to ask you a little bit about this really interesting device that you use in this particular study, the armband device. Um, So can you tell us a little bit about the hardware and how it works? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Thank you for that question. Yeah. So, um, you know, as you know, um, the halter monitor is a one concept of continuous monitoring, but we all know the the major drawback of using halter monitor uh, in the current form, right, and I'm not talking about the patch, is that you have a lot of wires and you have to put electrodes on. It's very cumbersome and um, it's not really, you know, amenable for daily monitoring. And so, uh, so we always obviously while, while the patch came out, you know, again, that is more still like at most than one month recording at best. And so we thought about more continuous monitoring device. And certainly the smartwatch is a, a really great option. But the problem with the smartwatch, as you know, is based on pulse oximeter or photoplethysmogram uh, LED. And a lot of the cardiologists are not trained to detect AFib based on PPG signal. And so we also, and it's also very susceptible to motion artifacts. And so we said, what is the other alternative that we could get convenient way of getting a ECG signal uh, without the wires and uh, putting new electrodes on every every day because it also causes skin irritation. So we came up with the, uh, an idea of developing a, um, a device that could be put on a upper arm. And uh, we have also developed a uh, reusable dry carbon-based electrode that could be um, that's shown to be provide good ECG signal. And so we have a three channel, meaning there are six electrodes. Um, and similar to Holter monitor, depending on how you move, certain positions get affected by the uh, EMG, electromyogram noise, where some channel does, uh, does not. And then we came up with a signal processing algorithm to uh, filter out the uh, EMG because one of the channels could be used as a reference EMG signal and we could filter that out. And so certainly um, this advantage of having a um, armband device is that certainly the, the, the signal quality is not as good as we feel measuring from the chest. However, you know, it's, it's put on the left arm, so you still do get nice... Uh, are, are interval and that's how that's what we're really interested in in um, you know getting good RR interval so that we could detect a- AFib looking at the variability in the RR interval and so um, you know one disadvantage is that we can't really see the P wave so that's a disadvantage of this armband but if you're just relying on RR interval which our algorithm is really based on um, it actually works well and then most recently we've been doing some work with um, there's a method called the uh, uh, convolution neural network uh, based autoencoder decoder. So it's a more deep learning approach. And if you have enough sufficient training data, uh, you could actually use this uh, CNN uh, based encoder decoder to remove the motion artifact. So that's, uh, that's another way of um, really removing motion artifact due to the you know, largely the EMG uh, artifact. So uh, there's some, yeah, so there's some lot of uh, potential to using this uh, armband. And then this also got started from our, um, 
you know, venture activity where we created a company and we got a um, SBIR phase one grant from the NSF and NIH. Um, how do you get a single lead ECG from the three electrodes that you have on, on the device? Well, basically, yeah, so basically it's like a lead one concept, but we're just having a bunch of three channels of lead one because the electrodes sort of go from one corner, you know, throughout. And so we take pairs, that kind of concept. Got it. Got it. Um, so it's, it's interesting because, um, I mean, um, it's, when you really, like you said, when you really rely on the peak detection and the R2R, that's when a device like this shines when you compare it to a PPG-based device, um, particularly when you're looking at measures like heart rate variability where right. you know, PPG doesn't perform well over a long period of time. So super interesting. Right. So um, interesting device. Does it matter where it is on the arm or does it have to be on the upper Biceps. Yeah, we, we put an upper arm because it's close to the heart. And so the further you go away from the heart, the signal becomes weaker. And so um, upper arm is the best location, uh, getting the good enough uh, you know, signal strength, ECG signal. And when, when you're thinking about quality of the signal, uh, you're comparing it to a 12-lead or a continuous monitor. How do you... Is this a visual inspection, a qualitative assessment? Yeah, so we did the um, simultaneous measurement using, uh, for example, commercial grade or clinical grade um, HP monitor, ECG monitor. And so those are uh, typical five lead uh, ECG device. Uh, so again, you know, the, the armband is essentially a, a, a one lead. So, you know, one lead ECG from... Um, the HP is also one channel. Um, ECG is sufficient because we're not getting lead two or lead three and so on. So, uh, and then we assess um, quantitatively by uh, doing side by side comparison of the uh, peaks or our intervals uh, that we get from the armband and the and the uh, Hewlett Packard uh, monitor. And then uh, based on that, you know, we could calculate heart rates. Uh, and then um, we also do heart rate variability comparison uh, between the two devices as well. Um, so that's what we have done um, in, in, in the paper yeah, as well. Um, can you tell us um, a little bit about the algorithm, what, fe what, what features you're looking for and how you extracted the features? Yeah. So the, the earlier version is basically looking at, we had three different uh, um, statistical measures. The first one was what we call root mean square of successive difference. Okay, so it's basically looking at the variability of the R interval. And the second thing we looked at was um, um, turning po point ratio is a statistical measure looking at certain patterns uh, between the normal sinus rhythm and, and uh, AFib again. You know, if you have AFib, this, uh, you don't have this repeatable uh, patterns of turning point ratio type of thing. The other one is we look at um, entropy value. And so the, the hypothesis is that when you have AFib, 
your entropy values are much higher compared to normal sinus rhythm. So it's, it's more of a threshold-based. So we have a normal sinus rhythm and AFib, and then we have certain threshold values for these things, and that's how we did it. The problem with these threshold-based uh, approaches are that um, sometimes when you get new data, that threshold value may change. And so sometimes you may miss misdetect some of them or or overdetect the AFib based on depending on the data. And so that's why the machine learning now is more popular because you don't have to derive new threshold every time you have a new data. And so that's where the feature becomes very important. And so um, when you have a feature like the room mean square success, so we do use those features derived from that. As well, some people also derive features from uh, like uh, high rate variability as well, and then you put it all these, you know, different features in, and then you go through this uh, machine learning algorithms and try to come up with the. Uh, uh, since you have many parameters coming to a hyperplane, and then you try to come up with the best decision line that separates the uh, normal sinus rhythm from the uh, AFib. Um, what uh, period of time do you use to do this? Is this a 20 seconds, a minute, oh. or three-minute ECGs? Yeah, so the original algorithm was based on two minutes of ECG, mm -hmm. uh, but um, certainly you could go down to as low as 30 seconds as well. And it performs well all the way down to 30 seconds of ECG? Yeah, I mean, it's, the performance degrades a little bit, but it's not a, such a drastic uh, decrease in performance as you go from two minutes to 30 seconds. Yeah. Got it. So for every two-minute epoch, you have an AF, non-AF label. And, um, and then the non-AF label includes everything that's not AF, including atrial flutter, from what I understand from your paper. Correct. Right. So you need to have a separate argon to detect a flutter, uh, same, you know, and then as well as um, you know, PACs and PVC as well. Yeah. So yeah. there again, there's you know that that we what we call a, um, a derivative of Poincaré plot um, and and look at certain patterns. And so because of the you have a trigeminy bigeminy patterns of the these uh, PAC PVC, um, you could you show some distinct uh, behavior uh, patterns. So you could derive a uh, feature from that, and then you could do machine learning. As one as one of the feature to discriminate PAC PVC from AFib as well as NSR, normal sinus rhythm. And the performance of this algorithm was quite good. Um, you want, can you tell us a little bit about how well it performs? Yeah, uh, I mean, uh, it's basically high nineties. Um, mm -hmm. If you look at a lot of the algorithms now. Um, if you just do a simple AF detection, discrimination between AF and NSR, most paper record, uh, you know, 98, 99% accuracy, um, you know, and similar values for sensitivity specificity. Now, if you, if other papers where they separate AFib from, you know, PAC, PVC, um, the, the performance goes down a little bit, but still in the high to mid 90s for those as well. Yeah, that's terrific. Really, really impressive results. Key, congratulations on this. Um, I was you. when when I was reading this paper, I was trying to think about like where this particular device fits in in the spectrum of our clinical care. Uh, 
I mean, certainly when it comes to detection of asymptomatic AF, it seems like a significant portion of that mar market will be the PPG-based risk-borne devices. Um, and this, this device seems to have really potential for long-term monitoring for detection of non-AF rhythms. Have you looked at that as well, whether, you know, for example, somebody comes in with syncope and you're looking for a diagnosis like SVT or ventricular mm -hmm. tachycardia because you're recording an ECG. Right. Um, so, it, it would, have you thought? Have you done any work with that um, population yeah. at all? Yeah, I mean that's a very interesting point. I mean, I, I'm glad you suggest that, but no, we haven't yet. Um, mm -hmm. But that's something that we could certainly use to explore that uh, those opportunities going forward. I, I certainly agree. I mean, tachycardia, something like that, is mm -hmm. something that you know easily uh, detectable. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and you know, hospital at home, uh, intensive care units at home, where you need this long-term monitoring of an ECG rhythm. Um, uh, also, I think it's it's super interesting to think about the potential of a device like this for heart rate variability measurements for long-term heart rate variability measurements. Exactly. Um, um, PPG devices are just really not that good when it comes to that. And then I think this this device could potentially really solve that problem. Have you, you haven't done any work. If you haven't, you should definitely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, thank you for the suggestion. Yeah. <laughs> um, terrific. So, um, Key, uh, what do you, I mean, we kind of, you know, we segued into what the future holds for, for this particular device, and that's algorithm. What, do, what are you thinking going forward? What does the direction of this research look like for you? I mean, you're getting the armband device or? Um... Yeah, the armband device. Yeah, I mean, I think um, we, we still got a lot of issues we need to resolve in that, you know, that is amenable for long-term monitoring. Um, so we're trying to, you know, we built a prototype device. And, but it's too large and bulky, so we need to miniaturize it further, um, and uh, you know we need to make the uh, miniaturizing it as well as using more flexible sensors, so that it conforms better with the with the arm as you bend and stretch it. Um, and as I said, you know motion artifact is a huge problem, but again, you know with the um, new techniques that I talked about, uh, CNN. You know, encoder decoder approach to filter out the motion artifact is a promising approach. Um, and then also we need to sort of uh, um, work on um, waterproofing the system. So the electrode itself is waterproof, but the circuitry needs to be waterproof so that we don't short circuit the, 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 uh, um, the, the circuit when uh, exposed to water, for example, when you're showering or going, to go for, going for a swim, that kind of thing. So um, still a lot of work to be done. Uh, so we hope to um, submit another grant, like the phase two grant through um, SBIR uh, to do this kind of work. Um, and then, you know, further validation and then, and then do a, a greater, a bigger trial uh, looking at, you know, if, if it, population as well as what you just talked about um, is a is another interesting opportunity for for this device yeah it's really interesting stuff and we definitely have to have you back on the podcast to talk about the next phase of this yeah. product about 
if we get yeah if we get that far yeah <laughs> um all right so the the you know i wanted to spend the, the last few minutes we have together on what i call the kichan productivity function so yeah. uh, key, <laughs> key, you're, you're certainly are you know very productive so um can you give me a little bit of sense of like how you go about organizing your day and get you know get as much done as you do yeah i you we know love the small details here <laughs> well i mean i think that i've i've been sort of fortunate to work with a great colleague like uh you know dr david manis and hopefully with you going forward but also i mean i'm very grateful for with a lot of um postdocs and you know great phd students i have had and uh, as well as the current students so i consider myself you know as you know right now i i'm i'm a department head so my time is very limited but i think i'm a very creative person i'm a good idea generator person and at, at my level you know that's all i could do uh, i i don't have time to code things anymore but i do have a lot of good ideas i think and so um i provide these ideas to my students and postdoc and um and 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 once they agree that it's a good idea and uh you know they're the ones who are doing all the work and so um but it, it's this sort of formula that sort of worked for me um for the past uh, 10 years i would say and um uh, you know it's really sort of um symbiotic relationship in that you know i'm a good idea generator and and unfortunately some of those ideas turn into you know good uh, fruition and and we're able to produce some uh, good papers and and have a good productivity Uh, but you know i i as you know we're all interested in what we do uh, um, and i think the vice maybe perhaps the secret sauce is that um that i'm very interested and i have an inquisitive mind i guess and and uh, and um, you know, you are, as our mothers and or our parents have always said, as long as you're interested in what you do, you know things sort of take care of itself. And so, um, yeah. <laughs> do Do you have like specific blocks of time that you schedule during the week for writing? Uh, or deep I, work, concentrated work. Yeah, you know that's a good question. Um, I try to work on it pretty much throughout the whole day. Um, I know I get you know interrupted quite a bit with the emails during the day, but um, but there are times when I don't have any meetings. I try to really concentrate and 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 write the papers and proposal because I I, I have to really prioritize doing this kind of thing. Otherwise, um, I I don't have any more. Yeah, I don't. I lose that time. So, um, yeah. So you know, I'm I'm I'm. I'm pretty i think uh productive throughout the day because i know that i don't have much time so when do when i do have no meetings that particular block of times so I, I i i work on papers uh, otherwise i get you know th- those get all piled up so yeah the dreaded meeting seems to be right avoiding meetings seems to be the best productivity hack <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. so do you work do you like to work early in the morning or are you an afternoon person um yeah, um, when I was a grad student, obviously I was a night owl. But now that um, I'm in a regular job, I uh, I get up early now. Uh, and uh, yeah, most productive time I would say is in the morning, when there's no meetings and catch up on uh, emails and and uh, 
so that when I get done with the emails for the day in the morning, I try to do the work um, during the daytime when I don't have a meeting scheduled. Yeah. And how do you stay healthy? Do you exercise regularly? Yeah, I do. I, I, I have a passion for playing tennis. So, uh, huh. yeah, I play tennis in the summer quite a bit. I belong to a couple clubs and then, um, and then wintertime also belong to an indoor. And then when I'm not playing tennis, I'm, I do run uh, 30 minutes every other day. Yeah. And I do oh a lot God. of trail running. <laughs> oh, you like trail running? I, I do yeah. as well. It's kind of... Oh, okay. Yeah. There's a lot around you, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of good trails here. Yeah. That's terrific. Um, awesome. Um, th- yeah. I th- thank you so much for taking the time and joining oh, thank me you. and talking about this paper. I, I definitely learned a lot through talking to you and, and learn a l- little bit about you as well, especially the trail running. We should definitely talk about that a little bit more right. next time we meet. <laughs> yeah. Uh, is there anything you would like to leave our audience with? Any parting shots? Where they can find, where, maybe where they can find you and your work. Oh yeah, yeah. So I, I, I mean, I mean, we have a web page, and uh, so um, you know, you could find anybody in Google, right? <laughs> Type their names, and yeah. So terrific. Thank you so much, Keith. All right. Thank you, Hamid.